And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, October 11th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to quantify risk for your information so you can manage it and the risk better. Plus, paid administrative leave still plagues the federal workforce. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Chief Diversity Officer's Executive Council is looking to help agencies implement Biden administration's goals for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The council creates government-wide strategies for DEIA, and it's just reached its one-year anniversary just last month. The council has set up some diversity goals, too. They're looking to raise the DEIA index score in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey six points by 2026. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from government-wide Chief Diversity Officer Janice Underwood. For the first time, we have created, the Biden administration has created this constituency in the workforce, the federal workforce, which are DEI&A leaders, these senior chief diversity officers who are trying to help agencies more robustly meet their missions, increase organizational health, increase employee experience so that we can increase customer experience. But having said all that, We see that these chief diversity officers needed sort of a North Star or support. The Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Accessibility at OPM is that North Star because my team exists to help everyone else in agencies think about how to implement DEI&A to meet their agency missions. So our customers who we're trying to support are the chief diversity officers their leadership teams, all the way to the cabinet secretaries. How are they thinking about DEI&A? And that's exactly what this council has done. It's an interagency forum that allows these senior leaders to come together and innovate in real time and learn new uh, promising practices and triage problems. So we're really trying to help us think about organizational health from a DEI&A perspective. We created four working groups, and they each have a robust project plan. There are leaders of all those working groups. They meet weekly, and they are rolling up their sleeves and getting the work done so that we can identify who are the exemplars in these spaces and then help other agencies with policies and practices that can advance the DEI&A mission and really the spirit of Executive Order 14035. I would imagine that one of the interesting things about this position that you're in, which I know that you're the first one ever to hold this position, is you're basically overseeing government-wide DEIA, but also at the same time, each agency has its individual goals or challenges within DEIA. So how do you see the either your role or the council's role as looking at the specific challenges or goals of agencies to, to try to help them along there? How does that relationship work? All CDOs, no matter you are a small agency, a medium or a large agency, you have access to the government-wide chief diversity officer. They come to my office hours. They participate in the DEINA online learning community that we've created. And they regularly request technical assistance from my office. That was very intentional because we know that everyone is situated differently and everyone has different challenges. So we're trying to meet those challenges and be honest about those challenges 
And one of the things we instituted was a CDO survey so that we can figure out how are the challenges at EPA different from the challenges at State Department. We know that State Department has a domestic and a global footprint, but we also know that we have chief diversity officers that are squarely thinking about the American workforce and the federal workforce like at Department of Labor. And some agencies have lots of subcomponent agencies that they have to communicate with. And that information flows from the council down to those subcomponent agencies. So it's really important that we meet the CDOs where they are and their senior leaders. For the first time, we actually have a metric related to the D, the E, the I, and the A, all the four letters in our OPM FEVS survey. Now that we've developed a DEI and A index, my goal is to raise that government-wide by six points by September 2026. The FEVS for the next iteration is coming up relatively soon. So when you look at that data that's gonna be coming out, what are you what are you really looking for there to try to tell if I guess you're on target for that long-term goal? Our 2022 baseline was 69%. And what that basically told us was that 69% of the federal workforce have positive perceptions of all the four letters, right? Of course, there are individual scores for all the four letters, but from a composite, 69%. Going forward, I'm on pins and needles, but I'm particularly interested to see if our composite score raises or lowers because we know that there is this national dialogue on what is DEI and A. And by the way, our lowest score last year was in equity. Equity was the score that the federal workforce sort of battled with the most because from 2021 to 2022, before we even launched it, people were having conversations like, what does equity mean to me? What is workforce equity in the context of my position? My hope is that over the last year and a half, two years, that we've done a good job, hopefully, of educating the federal workforce on what equity means in particular. So I want that composite score to raise, but I'm hoping that that very low equity score, which was 65 in 2022, would also raise because that's going to be the telltale sign. I'll get some indication on do we press a little harder? Do we expend our our um, attention to different areas? Or how do we need to pivot? Because we are taking a data-driven approach. When you say data-driven approach, what is the type of data that you're looking at? Is it workforce demographics? Is it employee engagement? Like how, how do you tell from the data what, what is happening with DEIA? When I think about our DEIA index, I'm also closely tracking the employee engagement index. And so I'm hoping those numbers go up as well. But um, some of the other metrics and some of the other data that we're supporting CDOs uh, government-wide are their workforce demographic uh, data. How are they thinking about their MD-715 data? And just this past summer, we launched a DEINA dashboard because we wanted to make sure that agencies have access to their DEINA data. And in this dashboard in future iterations will improve as we iterate and add more questions to the dashboard that we wanna ask and answer. And those will come from the CDOs on those working groups. You mentioned a little bit earlier on that you do work 
to communicate with federal employees and different agencies to explain, you know, not only what is DEIA, but what is the work that is going on in this space. What are some of the things that you hear about or hear from employees about what they see in their in their day to day experience? So we hear things like we want more events, we want more programming, um, we want to learn more, we want to get involved. We also hear from the federal workforce things like, what do you mean by workforce equity? What type of programming is OPM doing and how does that relate to workforce equity? Because I get increased diversity and I get increased inclusion and I get increased accessibility for people with disabilities, but I don't know what workforce equity means. We've done a lot to make sure that people understand that workforce equity is about making sure employees have what they need to be successful in their jobs. And we, we're trying to communicate that to those in the workforce and those who we aspire to be in the workforce, uh, making sure that we don't overlook anyone. So let me give you an example. We noticed, and the data is clear, that less than 7% of the federal workforce is under 30. That's catastrophic when we also think about who's ready and eligible to retire. So one dimension of diversity that is top of mind for me and OPM writ large. Any recommendations to agencies who might be struggling more than others to advance DEIA priorities? OPM put out a guidance document to agencies who are struggling on how to hire a chief diversity officer or chief diversity and inclusion officer. And so I recommend agencies to revisit that document. I think that they should... And they would enjoy reading it to understand that one of the things OPM Director Karen Ahuja said is that this position needs to be a position that has influence in the organization and be a senior leader. We need to go out and talk about who's doing the work and start to partner, and this is exactly what we've done, partner those agencies that are doing great things in one area with other agencies who are struggling and have some peer coaching. And then the last thing is come talk to us because those agencies who are struggling, they can request technical assistance from me and my team. We can coach them through and make sure that they have um, the theoretical and practical knowledge that they need to implement a DEI and a strategy for their agency. So they need to give me a call. Janice Underwood, government-wide chief diversity officer at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, paid administrative leave, it still plagues the federal workforce. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. When an agency management doesn't know what to do with someone, too often they put the employee on paid administrative leave. Despite a 2017 law designed to curb this practice, it still happens a lot, according to the group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. For more on the findings, we turn to Peer Senior Counsel Peter Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins, good to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. What made you look at this and what did you find? Well, what really drove us is, is that Peer is an organization that provides pro bono legal representation for whistleblowers in federal environmental agencies and also state and local, I should say. But with the federal agencies, we've had several clients who were put on extended administrative leave without any guidelines, any boundaries on that administrative 
administrative leave in a prominent case we represented a managing direct former managing director of an agency who was put on leave by his agency paid for three years which was extreme and of course it was tremendously stressful for him it's been stressful for other clients who've been in the same situation and it costs the federal government literally millions of dollars that we documented. And it's not just us documenting that, but GAO and others have done studies and looked at the data and realized it's costing the federal government tens of millions of dollars these extended administrative leave. So the administrative leave is imposed if the agency thinks someone did something wrong, but they don't know how to deal with the case or resolve it, sounds like. Right. And they're supposed to go to investigative leave after 10 days under the 2016 law that Congress passed. And then the investigative leave has limits. But the problem is that the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, never followed through with the regulations that Congress directed it to issue that were to implement that law. And OPM was supposed to have issued those regulations in 2017, in September 2017. They did a draft, but they never finalized it. That draft was done back under the Trump administration. Biden administration has not picked up the ball and and done what it's supposed to do. Now it's been more than six years since those regulations were due. And as a result, the agencies themselves don't have the guidance that they need to, to fully carry out what Congress told them to do in 2016. And you mentioned an agency managing director, so it's not just low-level people or functionaries that end up on administrative leave, but it sounds like a high-ranking official. Well, we had uh, another who was the uh, the head of the EPA uh, Children's Health Office, the, the head of the whole office, something like 17 employees. She was also put on extended administrative leave without explanation, which we claimed was illegal and are still claiming is illegal. Her case is still live. So we have had other clients, uh, you know, at different levels of of the government. And in fact, it's the higher level ones that tend to be more controversial and get extended out because the political appointees and others at the high levels don't want to deal with these uh, whistleblowers. That was my next question. Is it mostly whistleblowers that end up on administrative leave or can someone commit some other alleged misdoing? Well, Certainly they can, but it's just a practical matter that peer represents whistleblowers. So we select clients who are the people who are stuck in that situation. So that's who we deal with. Now, there are other people who are put on administrative leave for all sorts of other reasons. And the general concern that Congress had in 2016 was that often they're just left there because it's convenient for the managers to to not deal with them, it's easier to do nothing as a federal manager than to actually tackle the issue. So it's costing taxpayers millions for, for the, this neglect. We're speaking with Peter Jenkins. He's senior counsel at the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. And in your recent release on this, you mentioned that some agencies do keep statistics on this like they're supposed to, including the National Park Service and some amazing stats on administrative leave there. Right. And this was after this 2016 law was passed. So in 20 FY 2018 through 20, there were a total of 260 person years, you know, valued to taxpayers in excess of $10 million of people sitting on administrative leave. Now, we don't know, obviously, every single one of those cases was about. Some of them could have been whistleblowers. Some of them could have been legitimate, but we, we don't know. So Congress wanted to you know get a handle on this issue, and that's why we've threatened to sue OPM if they don't issue the implementing regulations. And the regulations require agencies to keep these statistics. What else are they supposed to do under the law? Well, they're supposed to um, have very defined processes for uh, how administrative leave 
then shifts to investigative leave if the if the person's under investigation or if they're not sure whether they're going to put them on investigation there's something called notice leave that has sideboards on it so there's different categories of leave then the OPM is supposed to report on the total number of cases and the agencies are supposed to report we have urged them to make that reporting more transparent more public posted on a OPM website the other thing we have urged in our petition since they haven't finalize the regulations and they're still mulling over what to do. We've said what we need to do is see some consequences for managers who abuse the law, who abuse the regulations. Because as I said, it's easier for managers to just put people on administrative leave and then not deal with them. But that's a form of abuse if it goes on for too long and in violation of the law. So we want to see those managers subject to some potential consequences such as um, the Office of Special Counsel finding that, that that itself is a prohibited personnel practice that they can be uh, disciplined for. And just to look at this from a different angle, if someone feels, if an agency head feels that someone should be put on administrative leave, why don't they just fire them? Uh, Well, (laughs) you can't just fire a civil servant. As you know, you have to go through the, you know, normal process of issuing a notice of proposed uh, removal and then, you know, a final thing that that does take time. But this process that we're talking about is before they issue that sort of a notice. It's when they're investigating and deciding what to do. And so once they issue that notice, then you're under a different clock altogether. But if it's a matter of just investigating or, you know, just trying to decide what to do, that's what this administrative leave act is about. Sure. And as you mentioned, someone on administrative leave for three years does seem not only excessive, but absurd. Anything more than a month sounds absurd if you're trying to find out what it is you need for fact-finding. I wonder, this is speculation, but if it is the political people, appointees, that put people on administrative leave, I mean, if you have an agency head or a bureau head, that would have to be a political appointee probably above that person to be able to put them on leave. They know they're on short time because that's the way of political appointments. And is it just a convenient way of kicking it into the next administration, if you will, or the next person that takes over? It can be. Or, you know, in the Trump administration, it was often figuring out ways to get rid rid of high level people in the bureaucracy that they didn't like, that they wanted to sidetrack without without going through the hassle of, of proposing to to fire them. So they just put them on extended leave. That was some abuse that happened under the Trump administration, as you probably know. Only the Trump administration? <laughs> no. Well, I shouldn't say only the Trump administration, but we had a lot more clients under the Trump administration. Let's put it that way. Got it. All right. So you're going so you have a lawsuit going. No, we filed this petition. petition. We moved it to OPM 60 days. Then we said if you don't issue these final regulations or otherwise guarantee that you're about to, then we will withdraw the petition and sue them. And we think there's good case law that agencies can be forced to issue regulations that they've sat on for for years, you know, years and years. When Congress directed them with a timeline, Congress said this should have been done by September of 2017. And do you have any feedback or any signals coming back at you from OPM that they intend to get on this? No, but we expect we'll hear from them. Peter Jenkins is Senior Counsel at Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Good to talk to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what the continuing resolution leaves unresolved. But first... 
how to quantify risk to your information so you can manage information and risk better. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You can't manage what you can't measure, and that's the idea behind a professional association known as the FAIR Institute. FAIR stands for Factor Analysis of Information Risk. The group seeks to advance quantitative measurement and management of risk to information, including in federal organizations. And here with more of what information keepers need to know, the founder of the FAIR Institute, Nick Sanna. Mr. Sanna, good to have you with us. Pleasure to be here with you. Fair to say that, uh, no pun intended, that most organizations assess their information risk by what comes out on Patch Tuesday or what they read from reports coming from CISA and organizations like that, but not perhaps as scientifically as they might. Is that a good way to put it? I think it's a good way of putting it. I think as a profession for many years, so we have abided by a compliance mentality. There is an attack. There's a new ways of trying to thwart that attack. And, and so we come up with this list of cybersecurity initiatives that you need to implement to be safe, but that hasn't worked very well. And, and so because a lot of those measures are implemented out of context, and what we're missing is a real understanding of the risk that we're facing and what are the correct measures that you need to implement to face that specific risk, which may change from uh, attack and attack. And so what we've been missing in the industry is a risk-based view of the problem, and we have been stuck with a compliance view, which didn't get us more secure in many cases. And maybe just briefly describe what are the ways to approach getting a risk assessment that is based on quantitative assessment? What are the measures people need to have so that they know what the risks really are? Yeah, that's a very good question. To put things in context, uh, let's start with a basic definition of what risk is according to uh, this FAIR standard. So you only have risk when there's a probability of a loss event. And so when there's an asset of value, you have a threat touching this asset and the threat, you know, actual threat actors actions onto the asset result in a material damage to the business. And the damage could be in the form of loss of productivity, privacy liability, reputational loss, many different damages. And so a control deficiency, which oftentimes we point to as a source of a problem, can be related to a risk if it's in context of an asset of value and there's a threat action there. In abstraction, it's not. And so having the context of the value of the asset and the threat activity and the potential impact is what defines risk. All right. And how do you put quantities on different risks such that you can manage them better and deploy your cybersecurity resources in a way that mitigates the top risks? That's a very good question as well. And so once we have defined the scenarios in which bad things can happen, so what is a threat actor? What is the asset? What is the impact? You can start looking then at how many times can this happen and what the impact is. And so you think of risk measure being the effect of the likelihood. How many times can this event happen in your organization and what is the impact? So frequency and impact is basically the very basic formula by which you would measure risk. In other words, it's an engineering approach to thinking about risk. Well, I would say more of an accounting approach to saying measuring risk because risk, uh, it should be, uh, how can I say, uh, as a financial discipline. In cyber, for many years, we uh, spoke of risk in technical terms, which was, I would say, a piece of it. It was incomplete. And we're turning what used to be a technical discipline into a business discipline by taking in the technical factor, by putting it in business context and turning it into an actuarial science, which it should be. 
So in other words, you look at it almost not as an engineer, but maybe as an insurer would look at risk. Yeah, an insurer, or I would say a financial accountant. You know, in many organizations, you know, there's many forms of risk. In large corporations, they think about market risk, credit risk, some form of operational risk. And cyber should be seen in the same way. How many times can this bad event happen? And what is the impact? And how can we measure the effectiveness of our security measure in terms of reducing that risk and finding the ROI? Like any business decision, you want to see the return on investment. And so what is the baseline risk? And what is the capacity of the security measure in reducing either the frequency or the impact of both? There should be an accounting and a financial exercise. And like any technical discipline, you know, you need to have a business justification that goes along with it. And that's what models like FAIR provide. We're speaking with Nick Sana, who is the founder of the FAIR Institute. And in your experience, how mature are federal operators, federal agencies, with respect to quantifying their risks to information? Because they sure talk about it a lot and spend a lot of money on it. And as you say, you know, the breaches and the losses nevertheless continue to happen. I think in the federal government, we have a very strong aspiration to manage cybersecurity from the risk perspective in an effective way. But unfortunately, we revert many times into uh, being compliant to checklists. So um, if you look at many regulations, executives order on cybersecurity, I tell you, inspector generals, when they uh, assess the readiness of your cybersecurity operation, they will definitely be very pleased to looking at your risk-based approach. But if you apply the checklist and, and tell me readiness checklist, that's okay too. So people fall into the easy check-the-box type of compliance and shy away from what they feel is a bit more advanced or more obscure in their case, in many cases, you know, or more, um, they feel they're less mature in assessing risk. And so they fall back on the compliance approach, we get some a pass, you know, but it forces many agencies, unfortunately, into a setup where they're doing a lot of technical compliance work without context of risk necessarily, you know, because they're going down the list and not necessarily focusing resources more on assets that are of value or, you know, that are more, can I say, uh, more impactful to the organization. And so, again, very strong aspirational goals. But from the tooling perspective, we're still stuck with checklists. We don't have advanced, uh, can I say, assessment models. I think there is an aspiration from both the White House and CISA to change that picture, but it's still in becoming. And you have this discipline known as factor analysis of information risk. Where should that skill lie? Should it be in the CIO organization? Should it be in the program management? Should it be at the agency deputy director for management level? I mean, who should have this kind of skill? That's a fantastic question. In most organizations that we are working with, uh, that skill oftentimes should be in the CISA office, you know, the uh, office of the chief information security officer. They're most often tasked with assessing risk, you know, to meet a certain number of regulatory requirements and also provide the business an understanding of what security measures they should implement. But it should be a, a specific function uh, that is separate from security operation. Operation is meant to secure the organization, but risk management should be a branch under the CISO that is tasked with assessing and prioritizing those risks. So that we can direct the operations, you know, to focus on what matters. Think of it as like a, another line of defense, a second line of defense. You know, you have the first the troops in the front, they're engaging the threat actors day to day to trying to secure your organization by implementing better security measures. But you need also the generals on the hill that assess the battlefield and say, we have a higher priority here. This is a significance. Apply more resources there and, and priorities accordingly. So you need both. You need security operations, but you also need a strong risk management function that doesn't just do compliance. 
It strikes me that, you know, because everyone says, well, we never have enough money to do everything we want, in order to get the funds or get approval for the funds you really need to mitigate risk, speaking in terms of quantitative analysis of what the risk is and therefore this is what we need makes a much better case to the funders and the financial people than simply saying, well, you know, we're worried about this or that. Absolutely. Listen, the number one method today for prioritizing, you know, uh, security issues in the government is oftentimes the age of a security finding. I asked them, how you do it? Well, we have a checklist of compliance. Every day we find findings of non-compliance. We go down the list and in doing so, they don't focus on what matters. And they tell me, Nick, it's a never ending battle because the number of findings that we can resolve is smaller than the findings we get every day. So you're never going to catch up. And so the only way to catch up is, as you said, prioritize what matters, identify the assets of business significance that are a threat, and focus on what's most at risk and prioritize. And so if in, in a context where you cannot do everything, focus on what matters most and be at peace with that because you're addressing the biggest bars of risk versus the smallest ones, you know? And it's almost like, uh, if I can use an analogy, oftentimes we spend our security budget like peanut butter on a toast, you know, evenly. And while it should probably, we should apply more, can I say, peanut butter where it matters most and less elsewhere. And by not focusing on what has made us more, we give the, um, can I say, the threat actors an advantage. They know what to focus on, they're going after high-priced assets. And so we cannot afford being distracted and doing busy work and not focus on what it matters most. And if someone decided they wanted to become a practitioner of advanced quantitative measurement, how long would it take? Well, that's why we created the Institute. We created an Institute at demand of the industry. We now have 15,000 members, you know, 50% of which Fortune 1000 represented many government agencies. And it's become a training organization. And so uh, there are books, you know, uh, there is a book called uh, Measuring and Managing Information Risk, you know, a fair approach uh, that you can find on Amazon. There is courses uh, at the Fair Institute, online courses, in-person courses, they may be week-long courses. You can get the basics you know, of risk analysis in just a week. It doesn't require you to have a PhD in mathematics. You know, High school math is sufficient. And there is a methodology in a science and a standard has been a taxonomy and an annex model have been well-defined. And so I've seen uh, people going from zero to hero in, in just a week and then starting to apply it with the right tooling and the right data with a high degree of effectiveness. Well, sounds like a good way to spend a week. Nick Sanna is founder of the FAIR Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what the continuing resolution leaves still unresolved. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For contracting and procurement, life goes on under the continuing resolution, but the signs aren't good. Chaos in one chamber of Congress threatens passage of the National Defense Authorization Bill and the chances for full-year 2024 appropriations later on. There are some places contractors can focus on, though, in order to help keep the government keep its normal operations going. We get more now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. Larry, you're saying that it's uh, probably a wise strategy to focus on existing contract vehicles because there is a wide range of them there. That's right, Tom. It's time to dial down the outside noise as much as you can if you're a government contractor because there's plenty of business at hand right now. Not only is there business to pursue, but there are some major 
indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts that are either already in motion or about to be in motion. That's the GSA Oasis Plus contract where offers are due, I think, at the end of this month. That's going to be a huge replacement contract on the professional services side. So any professional services company really wants to make sure that they've got their offer in, they understand what's going on there. But it's not just services. There are a number of IT contracts out uh, or coming out as well, Tom. You know, we really haven't heard very much lately about GSA's Polaris small business contract. But that's moving apace as well. GSA has issued a couple of amendments to the standing solicitation in order to accept a new round of offers. So that's going to be a potential contract as well, an IT small business contract that could get stood up sometime in the next fiscal year. GSA is planning its much larger Alliant 3 contract for IT that will be coming out in 2024 calendar year as well. So those are some significant opportunities, but it's not just GSA, Tom. There's also the National Institutes of Health. Now, you know, we've been talking a lot about the hurdles and problems they've been having with their CIOSP4 contract. This is a contract for IT solutions, so services with product. They've dismissed all of the protests, handled them all. They're getting into the down-select process for awards, so we're nearing the finish line on that. At the same time, NIH is starting to gear up for the recompete of its IT commodity type contract, mostly for products, which is CIOCS. That contract is due to expire sometime in 2025. So during 2024, we're going to see a lot of the preliminary work that leads up to an RFP and a new round of competition there. So those are the good news items. There's plenty of business to pursue. There's going to be business to pursue through those contract vehicles and elsewhere. But as a contractor, you shouldn't get too distracted by some of the, the circuses in town in Washington. And But if you're not in Washington, if you're in Northern Virginia, Maryland, or somewhere else, there's business to be done. Well, also, too, isn't it true that these new generation of IDIQs, the ones in existence now that are operating and the ones that are planned once they get past the protests, they have on-ramps periodically, such that if you don't get on the original program, you'll have a good chance to get on there later on. And that's a marked difference from years ago, or if you missed out on a big IDIQ or a big GWAC, you were out, period. That's really an excellent point, Tom, and I think it's something that every contractor needs to keep in mind. You know, we've seen some of the existing contracts have on-ramps, but the future iterations, particularly ones like Oasis Plus, they are planning fairly consistent on-ramps so that if you're not prepared the first time or if you don't make the cut, you don't really need to file a protest and be concerned that you're going to be shut out for the life of the contract. Because probably in 12 to 18 months, you're going to have another opportunity to get on. Maybe when you're a little bit stronger, have had a little bit more project management under your belt, whatever. So GSA and NIH and DOD, all the major agencies that manage these indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, they're really pushing towards more opportunities for people through the life of the contract to keep competition high and to introduce new solutions. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to ask you about the Air Force and its proposal for a quick start program, which means that even if there's no appropriation, you can do new things anyway. Sounds like kind of a move that 
puts your neck a little bit out there. Tom, you would be putting your neck out there a little bit for the Quick Start program, but this kind of caught my eye, and I think it's really worth talking about. As you mentioned, this is an Air Force initiative, but I don't think that it really needs to be limited to the Air Force. Look, right now, a best-case scenario is that federal agencies have nine months of regular appropriations because we never really get appropriations until sometime in December. And it remains to be seen whether we will get them in December, January, or February this year. And that doesn't really allow for a lot of time for planning or implementation of strategic level solutions. And what the Air Force acquisition personnel are saying is, look, in order for us to keep our national defense posture high and to develop the types of solutions we're going to need to combat external threats, we need to have more predictability, more stability in our budgeting and spending process. We need the authority to have a quick start, which the Air Force envisions would allow them to essentially reprogram up to $300 million in funds that would allow them to start and maintain key defense programs, even without an appropriation having been passed. So say we get down to the end of September and there's no appropriation, surprise, the Air Force would still be able to move forward with its critical infrastructure programs that we're going to want to have to keep our defense posture high. Extrapolate that across the entire Pentagon, Tom, and you can see where quick start capability could really come in handy. And then it's not too far to go down and look at DHS and some of the other agencies. Their cyber security, their cyber functions are critical for things. Also, things like Medicare and Department of Veterans Affairs, where they're delivering really important services to citizens that need them. I think Quick Start is something that is worth a look. Of course, then you run the danger of outrunning what Congress thinks you should be doing, and that could come back to bite you later on. Well, that explains one reason why Quick Start is being met largely with the sound of one hand clapping on Capitol Hill. They don't want to give up the control. They don't want to give up the oversight. And while on one hand, that's understandable and, you know, you do have to operate within the law. I get that. But really, you wouldn't really be talking about the need for a quick start program at all if Congress would do what it's supposed to do in a timely manner and pass appropriations bills and the defense bill on time, which they just don't do. So quick start is kind of a reaction to a problem that Congress created. And ironically, that Congress is the one, Tom, that would be the first to hold oversight hearings should the Air Force or any other agency fail to have the technology it needs to meet a threat. Yeah, the problem with all of these workarounds is if you have ways of operating normally and just it doesn't matter anymore if Congress doesn't have appropriations on time, the more you rely on the workarounds and they become the norm. And there's even less incentive for regular order over time. You're right. The other part of that is that you have workarounds because the system, as we know it, isn't working correctly. And there are, you know, I'm not going to place all the blame at Congress's feet, although a good portion of it belongs there. But you look at the senior people in the executive branch who set the budgeting, who set the top line numbers and priorities, and then you look at how they interact with Congress and when. Credit to the people who are working in the trenches to come up with these innovative workarounds. But if the people who were above them and who you know held oversight hearings on what they did or failed to do 
did their jobs in a timely manner, we wouldn't need these workarounds. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Everywhere you look in the world, you see use of missiles in military operations. Some of it by good guys, some of it from bad guys. That's why defending against missiles is a chief mission for the Army. For the United States, missile defense and freedom to operate in space go hand in hand. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington, I got an update from the commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command, Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler. One of my responsibilities, I have the 100th GMD Brigade, which are soldiers that are stationed in Colorado Springs, as well as Alaska, California, and Fort Drum, New York. And those soldiers provide 24-7, 365 protection of North America against intercontinental ballistic missile attacks from North Korea and from Iran. What's interesting about that formation, it's a multi-compo organization, so it is both active duty as well as Colorado and Alaska National Guard, and they do a fantastic job in keeping readiness, uh, staying vigilant and responding to any kind of North Korea tests that might uh, take place and staying vigilant on consuls 24-7. Yeah, that's my question, too, as Iran, you know, unfortunately, and North Korea, unfortunately, and Lord knows who else, China, they're always developing new capabilities and testing new types of missiles. What is the mechanism by which you can stay on top of what their offensive capabilities are so that defensive capabilities here can keep up? Sure. Yeah, we stay uh, very, very closely tied with the Missile Defense Agency. So as we see what the threat is doing out there and what our adversaries are doing with respect to their advances in offensive missile capabilities, the Missile Defense Agency is responsive to meeting those new requirements. And then they they work very closely with my operators. I mean, literally, we sit side by side with the engineers as we're going through the different development, uh, software development, etc., to make sure that the Missile Defense Agency doesn't develop something then that the operators aren't totally familiar with. Um, and then, and that's on the software side. And, and then uh, Missile Defense Agency right now is going through the development of the next generation interceptor, which, again, they involve our operators in as they go through developing the NGI. Right. And the interceptor program, can that handle, say, I mean, what's the posture towards hypersonics, which are even developmental by the other nations, but that seems to be where people are headed. Yeah, so uh, again, MDA is working uh, super hard on, first off, being able to detect hypersonics. If you can't see it, you can't shoot it. And so working with the uh, HBTSS, the hypersonic ballistic, uh, basically our space-based layer that we have to be able to track hypersonics, then that will feed into the interceptor capabilities that we will uh, that they will continue to work on developing, and our operators will be the ones that employ it. Yeah, it's like the difference between a knuckleball and a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Some batters say they never see it go by, and so <laughs> right. you've got to see it before you can swing at it. Right, right. And you're tied in closely with the space operation and the space apparatus for the military. How does that work? Yeah, so I'm the uh, Army Service Component Command to General Jim Dickinson, the SpaceCom commander. Uh, we've been doing that since the, really since the advent of Space Command in 2019. And uh, in that role, I have 1st Space Brigade. We provide forces to Space Command, and we work uh, very closely with the Space Force as well as with uh, uh, Navy and the Marine Corps in providing different service space capabilities 
to Space Command for operational employment. We use them in exercises. I have a little bit of convergence of space and missile defense. If I jump out of my space and missile defense command, commander responsibility into my joint functional component command for integrated missile defense, there's also work that we're doing as JIFIC IMD with Space Command. As you might be aware of in the latest unified command plan, it took the missile defense responsibility out from underneath strategic command and has placed transregional missile defense uh, capability, mission, and responsibilities underneath U.S. Space Command. Transregional. Coming from outside of the United States, basically. Or going from one AOR to another. Got it. And so it used to be global missile defense, which was not a very accurate description, really, of of what the mission set and what we were facing. It was transregional missile defense. And, And this made a lot of sense because General Dickinson and Space Command has responsibility of the global sensor manager. Well, many of our sensors that we have that we use for missile defense, they also are able to do space domain awareness. And so instead of arbitrating between STRATCOM and Space Command about use of these sensors, putting them all up underneath one combatant command solves the unity of effort, unity of command, and makes me responsive then to just one combatant command. Not that we ever had fistfights or anything between the two combatant commanders, but it just makes it easier for us to put it up underneath one commander. And the new term now is missile defeat as opposed to just missile defense. What is the difference, and how do you envision that? Yeah, so how I envision uh, missile defeat is if you uh, picture the traditional missile defense where it's active defense, where you see the Patriot and you see THAAD or Aegis BMD ships that are doing that active defense piece. Um, And there's also some passive defense, early warning, that's part of the traditional integrated air missile defense, and even attack ops. That's traditional integrated air missile defense. But then you take a look at what we're doing for left of launch capability. So before that missile gets off gets off the rails, gets off the tail, gets out of a silo, that left of launch capability, so we could deny and disrupt those capabilities before they launch, altogether becomes a missile defeat. And what we're trying to do is is we've been working and through a couple of different exercises, establishing a missile defeat effects coordinator. So somebody who's responsible for taking that that whole that that whole vision that I just told you about and, and exercising that. And so in the previous exercise with Space Command, we're, we've been rolling out this missile defeat effects coordinator concept and, and frankly, you know, test driving it a little bit. Yeah, so to kill a missile that would ordinarily come within the airspace, say, and you have to defend against it, to defeat it on the ground where it originates, that's not really missile defense command. That would be someone else that would shoot something at it. Right, and the missile defeat effects coordinator that's the one who identifies the threat and is able to then influence maybe another COCOM to say, hey, here's where your targeting should be after. Uh, maybe there's not kinetic effects that we can apply to that solution. Yeah, so that, that's where you get back to the need for the space view because that's where the original knowledge of such a launch would originate in the first place, likely. Right, right. I guess there are maybe people on the ground in some of the areas, but I mean, basically. And the, yeah, and some of the geographic bank fans who have that, they have the intel, and they, they, they're well aware what the adversary missile order of battle is. But again, a missile defeat effects coordinator can help work that really holistically across combatant commands. Again, because it's a trans-regional missile threat. Yeah, so there's really an update in doctrine and an update in command structure for you in recent times. What does that have, what's the effect of that on workforce and what you need for talent? Yeah, so um, so as we're, as we're practicing these, uh, these exercises, this notion, it's um, it's really been it's a good challenge because it's a new approach. And as, as my JIFIC IMD staff has been working with the SpaceCom staff, 
traditionally Spacecom staff, you know, they've been, they've been really focused on, you know, space and on orbit and, and the space capabilities. Well, now we've brought the missile defense, trans-regional missile defense requirement into them. So it's been a good opportunity for us to exercise and integrate with their staff on that uh, new mission set for Space Command. Yeah, and the concept of the Army astronaut, that has emerged too. And that's not a two words that you often hear conflated, but now, now it's a thing. Yeah, it sure is. We couldn't be prouder of uh, Frank Rubio, Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Frank Rubio, uh, one of my Army astronauts who just returned from the International Space Station, and you know, he's been in the news here quite a bit lately. He set the record for an American astronaut uh, uh, in space, 371 days. He just well, that's returned. more than a year, last that's, count. That's more than a year. That is, he's been more than a year in space, and um, he returned safe and sound. I had a chance to chat with him and catch up with him this past weekend and ask him, how he's doing as recovering, getting getting used to gravity again, and uh, how's his bone density? His his bone density is <laughs> it's getting there. Um, you know, as you would expect, NASA runs a, a an incredible number of tests on him, and mm-hmm. um, he didn't call himself a lab rat, but he's kind of a, he's he's a very good test case for NASA right now. But so as they do the testing on him and then rehabbing him to get him you know back to where he needs to be, you know, in the Earth's environment, he's in great spirits. He's glad to be home. He missed a couple of uh, key family events in that unexpected year, uh, mm. you know, the, that additional time. The additional I, time was because of the failure of a launch to, to get to the space station? Uh, what happened was they had uh, what, what they assumed was micrometeorites had damaged the cooling system on the, recovery, on the return vehicle. So NASA had to send, uh, uh, Russia sent up a replacement vehicle, but it took them six months to stay on station uh, before he and his other his, uh, Russian crewmates could, could return. And so, um, but like a good soldier, he soldiered on, you know, he was extended. A lot of soldiers get extended on deployments. Frank was just a different, uh, different type of extension on his deployment in a different domain. Got it. And then you've Super got, proud of him. And you had three Army astronauts graduated from? From West Point, yeah. So Drew Morgan, he's the commander right now at Quadrilene Atoll. So I'm the senior commander responsible for Quad, which is out there in the South Pacific. Does a lot of our strategic missions. We have space fence out there. It does supports all the testing for Reagan test site for intercontinental ballistic missile tests and other missile defense tests that we do there. Drew has taken over uh, command of that just this past summer, and then Anne McLean, uh, who is in NASA right now, she just competed in the uh, Brigade Command Assessment Program. She wants to go on and. Uh, uh, become an Army Brigade Commander. Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler, Commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I spoke with him at this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.